Wonderful. Thank you very, very much, uh, Claire, uh, for reading that. Um, it's uh, not, the, not the, the, the cheeriest of passages to be reading on a Sunday morning, but it is full of deep encouragement, as, as scary as it seems. Let me pray for us as we, as we look at this uh, remarkable chapter together. Father God, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that all of it is useful for us, and all of it needs to be read and preached and, and listened to and and thank you that it is helpful for us. Lord, we pray that um, we would pick up the big main theme from these chapters over the next few weeks, that, that the language wouldn't confuse us, but that we would um, and rejoice in the fact that one thing is always true, that God wins and he is in control of everything. Father God, we pray that we would leave here today very much feeling that, especially in our world, and that we would be encouraged and strengthened um, in the power of the Spirit um, and, and as we follow our King Jesus uh, Lord, we pray that very, very much that we would get um, real encouragement from these words today in your strong name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you still have nightmares. We may feel we're a bit old for them, but we do suffer from them as adults. Um, but our nightmares are often trapped into reality, aren't they? Even if we know they're not real in and of themselves, our dreams can be a measure of how stressed we are. What is on our mind these last two years with the pandemic, the last week with the war in Ukraine, especially if you're in the heart of what is going on, I can imagine that people are having a good few more nightmares than they ever used to. Europe, Ukraine is not sleeping well these past weeks. Many are waking up with cold sweats and their color is changing. Well, it is that feeling, that uh, emotion, that dread that we sort of need to have at the forefront of our minds as we read chapter 7, because that is how Daniel reacts to this dream. Verse 15, and if you have it, do you have it open in front of you? This will really help us, because we'll flit in uh, around this chapter quite, quite a lot. Verse 15, as for me, says Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. The visions of my head alarmed me. Verse 28, again, my thoughts alarmed me. My color changed. He's woken up in a cold sweat, in other words. Anxiety riven, dry mouth, shaking, blood draining from his face, ready for fight, uh, flight or fight. Daniel's having a nightmare. And the way Daniel reacts to this nightmare, much like with us, might point to what is really going on in the real world around him because there is a real geopolitical event that he is stressed about. And it is almost remarkable that we are preaching these passages as Ukraine is being invaded and subjugated by Russia as we speak. It is remarkable. For what is the geopolitical event he is worried about? Well, we find it in verse 1. It's the first year of King Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar, who Daniel was close to, if you remember, he's gone. And a far more evil king, Nebuchadnezzar's own, own grandson, we assume, his descendant, is taking his place. And Belshazzar did this by doing a number on him. He sort of unseated him by way of a brutal palace coup. That's a genuinely scary time for Daniel. Being the old prime minister of the old government in a new ruthless reign, he's not expected to really survive a change of leadership. He might well be lying awake at night, at night sort of thinking about what's going to happen to him. Now, you'll notice we've gone back in our timeline, haven't we? Uh, last week in chapter 6, we were in the empire of the Medes and the Persians that took over from Belshazzar. But here in chapter 7, we're sort of back a few, a few years again, back at the front of Belshazzar's reign. And, and, and that's really important because we've hit a very interesting moment in Daniel in chapter 7. You remember when we started this series that we said the book of Daniel was split up into two halves. Uh, Daniel 1 to 6 
uh, deals with the narrative of the life of the Jews in Babylon, represented by Daniel and his three friends. That's where we finished uh, last week. And chapter 7 to 12 moves on to sort of prophecy and, and visions of Daniel concerning massive future world events. Well, this is where we are today as chapter 7 opens the second half of this book, if you like. And we have our first vision which Daniel had back in the first reign of, of uh, King Belshazzar's uh, brutal reign. And, and, and Daniel is stressed. And this dream leaves him scared. He's uncertain about what is happening in the world around him. And this nightmare doesn't help because it contains more uncertainty in the world, except it is reaching hundreds of years deep into the future. And that brings us to the massive difference between Daniel's nightmare and the one that I have. And that is that Daniel's nightmare is actually informative and prophetic. He is receiving information from God directly about what really will happen. God gives Daniel 600 years of world history in one terrifying night. But as we'll see, he also shows Daniel everything that we need to know for every age from this point on in Daniel 7 until the very end of the world. And like Daniel, we should also rightly be in fear as we are allowed by God's grace to look into what Daniel sees and approach the God that Daniel knows. Now, you can tell we're in a different style of literature, can't you? We're in a different style of writing. That kind of writing, this kind of writing that we see here, is always used when we're talking about the, the sort of the future of the world or the end of the world. It's the writing you find in Revelation. And and all we need to know is that this literature looks complicated, but is in fact just images and ideas and symbols and numbers that, that help explain real things. So when we see beasts and horns, we know it doesn't mean that in 600 years' time of Daniel writing this, that there was a literal beast with literal horns that ruled the literal world for a while. We, we know that's not happening. That's just it, it, important to remember. Beasts and horns represent empires and kings and strength. This literature is sort of poetic language that is meant to shock us. It's meant to be enormous. It's meant to grip us and, and shake us and, 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 and stir us up and, and reveal to us simple truths about what God is really doing in the earth. So with the time we have this morning, we want to do one thing well in the midst of all this language. We want to get the big point of what is going on here in the chapter absolutely clear and not get too knotted up in what the three ribs in the bear's mouth represent, for, for example. We, we just don't have time uh, to do that this morning as much as that would be um, interesting. And incidentally on all of this, if you want to know a lot more than what is said on a Sunday morning, especially as we go into the second half of Daniel, we do have a Q&A session in a few Sundays' time, right at the end of the series, before we break up, where we can talk about all this. So you can bring all of those questions that you might have about how we read this literature, about how these things are sort of penned out, how we understand what's going on here. Please do bring all those questions. Feel free to ask them in small groups, but you can also bring them. Uh, to that evening as well. We're going to set up an evening dedicated to this because I think it's, it's really helpful and very important. But what is the one big point of Daniel 7? Well, verses 17 to 18 are really key for the whole passage, and they contain this one point, and it is simply that at the end of time, we win. That's it. God's people, the saints, true Israel, at the end of time, we win. We have a kingdom given to us forever and ever and ever, and that's Daniel 7. That's, that's the whole of Daniel. 
What are the two main points in Daniel we started the series with, if you remember? God has a loving plan for his people in the worst of times, and God has a loving purpose for his people for all time. And, and both of those come together in chapter 7, verses 17 to 18. You, exiled people of God, subjugated under a king, not from Israel or for Israel, subjugated under these beastly kings, don't worry, you win. Despite what seems to be true around you or how oppressed and small you are, you will receive as saints an eternal good kingdom. That's my plan and my purpose for you, says God. With me, we win. Now, let's see that for ourselves. Verse 16 is the interpretation of the dream. Daniel approaches an angel, and he tells Daniel what all this imagery means. First, says the angel, verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who will arise out of the earth. That's the bad news, Daniel. This is serious news about world history, and it is going to be scary and unpredictable and changeable and violent, and my goodness, do we know that to be true? Not just from these last two years, but from the last 10 days. Images and geopolitical events that we would never have dreamed happening in our century. What a chapter to be reading this morning as the Western alliance is threatened like never before in the last 40 years, as a dictator goes rogue, as the threat of nuclear war is banded around, as a nation is invaded by a superpower, as the way we live might genuinely change for the foreseeable future, etc., etc., etc. Daniel says, God, world history is going to be scary and unpredictable and changeable and violent. But here is the good news, verse 18. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. And in case you didn't get it, forever means forever and ever and ever. Thousands of millions of years into the future. I know the end, says God. I've been there. I've seen it. I've ordained it. We win. And now, Daniel, I'm going to tell you how that happens. And that brings us to our first point as we borrow down into this scary dream. Point one is a scene of being ruled by beasts. So Daniel falls asleep and he sees a storm in verse 2. And out of the sea that is being whipped up by this storm, four great beasts ascend, dripping wet and ugly. The, the, the sea Daniel has in mind is probably the Mediterranean. That's sort of the biggest sea that he would have known about. And so these beasts, you can imagine, might be the size of, um, I don't know, Sicily or something. They're, they're enormous. And each of these three, the first three, is like an animal. You have a lion with eagle's wings. That's quite terrifying. A lion who can fly. That's probably the worst of all worlds. The second one is a bear who's still got his last meal dripping out of his mouth. The third one is a leopard who is like the lion that has wings, but he's four times as scary because he's got four heads and he he can eat four of you all at once. (laughs) It might be somewhat amusing in the cold light of day sitting here in this building in Edinburgh thinking on these weird animals, but imagine being in your bed in the dead of night with your kingdom having been taken over by another king, and this is what you dream. This is terrifying. We're meant to be terrified along with Daniel. And just to reinforce this even more, that the lion is not just God making up a scary animal, beast one, to make a point in Daniel's dream, that the lion was the symbol of Babylon. Uh, a few summers ago, Jen and I uh, went to, on holiday to Berlin on our way, actually, to visit Emily Nelson's family, for those of you who know her, and we um, visited the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, and in that museum, in the main concourse, is the full replica of the actual Ishtar Gate that was the main entrance to the city of Babylon. In fact, I think I've got a picture of it here. 
It's um, an absolutely enormous thoroughfare. It's a huge gate. There it is. You can actually walk through it in Berlin. It, it's colossal. It's bright blue and carved in every single stone along the thoroughfare and on the, uh, on the gate itself are these massive gold lions. And they're enormous. They're sort of about the size of a man. And they represent the, the, the all-seeing, quickly-moving, awesome terror of Babylon. Now, remember what Daniel has just seen. He's just seen Nebuchadnezzar removed by his own family, by King Belshazzar, who hates God, hates God's people. He's been marching down this very thoroughfare, you can imagine, before these lions, claiming the beast himself, if you will, ready to kill. For, for, for Daniel's world, it looks wildly out of control. And this dream confirms it. These lions that represent the might of Babylon, they're emerging out of the sea, as it were. They're coming for you, Daniel. It would literally be like a Ukrainian in Kiev or Mariupol dreaming of an almighty Russian Z tank the size of Crimea emerging from the Black Sea. It's just not funny. This is why this is so terrifying for Daniel. He's in it. He, he's living this dream in real time in the real world. God's not messing around. This is true. And it is even more terrifying when you realize that Jerusalem, the place that Daniel cares so much about, is right in the middle of the territory that these four beasts are sort of fighting over. It's caught right in the middle of it. We're going to see that more and more over the next few weeks. The point of the dream, however, in the midst of all this terror, that whatever happens in history, God knows what is going on between empires and kings. He's planned it all. None of this takes him by surprise. And is that not everything we need to be reminded of today? In a week that has been described by nearly every major newspaper and broadcaster as the week that changed the world as we know it. I'm in a prayer group uh, with some IFES and UCCF workers. Some of you are as well um, in Ukraine, and they're sort of feeding us uh, prayer points from beyond the front line, if you were, about Christian students who are stuck under siege, many of whom will not live to see the end of the war and they're still reading their Bibles with their friends. And what is the book that brings them most comfort at the moment? It is the book of Daniel. Now, the question is, what on earth is going on with these beasts? Now, remember chapter 2, the statue of the four kingdoms, the gold of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the, the silver of the Medes and Persians, the bronze of the Greek Empire, and the iron and clay of the Romans. We mentioned it last week. Well, at the time, I told you to keep those four kingdoms in that order in your mind, because from here on in, and Daniel, uh, from, from Daniel chapter 7 to the end, we're going to meet these four kingdoms and their equivalent kings over and over and over again, like a cycle of repeating fours. And that is what we have in chapter 7. Each beast is linked to each of these kingdoms. The wing line, that's obviously Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. We've just seen that. The uh, devouring beast is the Medes and the Persians. Interesting, considering that they were known for um, devouring uh, people through flesh. Hi, guys, come in. Hi. Hi, it's great to see you. Hi, welcome. It's great to see you. Have a seat. And then the third beast represents the Greek Empire specifically Alexander the Great, who quite literally destroyed and conquered everything in his path. He got as far as India, um, the greatest series of conquests by a single person to date. And chapter 8 talks a lot about, a lot about that. He is the, the leopard with four heads, possibly because Alexander gave his kingdom over to four generals when he died. So those are the kingdoms. 
But before we move on to the fourth, let's just have a look at these three in a little bit more detail. And we need to notice the strange way in which Daniel rates these empires. If you notice that, it'll help us understand what happens next. Each empire is rated on how human they are or how beastly they are. Have you noticed that? So Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, the winged lion in verse 4, has this weird thing where his wings are ripped off and he's made to walk like a man, isn't he? A mind of a man was given to him. And maybe if you were thinking that there was going to be a fight and you were offered the choice of being a lion or a human, you'd want to choose to be a lion, you'd think. That's a very powerful weapon to be in the fight, especially one that flies. But in verse 4, the plucking of the wings, him becoming a man, that's not a demotion, that's a promotion. He's, he's being made the top predator of the earth, the man who is over the animals. You see, this in fact refers to chapter 4, if you remember a few weeks ago, when Nebuchadnezzar was reduced to a beast with hair like eagle's wings, but then has his mind of a man restored to him when he acknowledges who God is and bows the knee to him. Him becoming man is a promotion, now with reason and wholeness and dignity. Because in Bible terms, if you want to say that you're a really powerful nation, you don't want to choose an animal as your emblem, like the eagle, like America, or a bear, like Russia, or a unicorn, like Scotland, because, you know, it's not real. You should choose the creature that has undisputed power on the planet, and that creature is man. What goes with true rule, true rule in the earth is humanity. And it may look weak and feeble when it's just 11 stone of scrawny pink flesh, but, but lions, eagles, leopards, and bears would willingly swap with a human in a heartbeat if they could understand the question. So who is more human out of these kings? Who is the most ruler-like in that sense? Well, Nebuchadnezzar seems to come out best. He is the most king-like out of all of these. Because he is most man. And, and that is a major, major biblical theme. Because right back in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, God made the world out of the deep, out of a big empty ocean, much like Daniel 7 verse 2, and he made it into an ordered creation full of animals and beasts. And then he said that we, what we need over all of this is rule. We, we need rule over this. So the Bible thinks that rule is good. And the Bible recognizes that tyranny and dictatorship can be like an animal eating you, a truth that we are witnessing very much at the moment. Uh, the Bible's not hiding that truth. It's here in this chapter. But the Bible isn't saying, well, then get rid of all your rulers and be independent and free and happy. The Bible says, in fact, you need to get a real ruler and a good ruler who is going to rule you properly. And what the Bible does in Genesis 1 is give that rule to the best possible candidates in his creation. Humans. Two of them, made in the image of God, male and female, who are able to be like God to the rest of the world. They are able to look after the world, to love it, to care for it, and to have dominion over it. And that's what the Bible sets up as what proper rule looks like, a human being over the world under God. And the Bible says that most of human rule since the fall in Genesis 3, however, is basically animal recognizably animal, which is why monarchies and democracies and theocracies and republics and supreme soviets, whatever, they all fall into corruption. They all fall into torture and abuse and war. Ruled by beasts is what most of the planet would recognize most of the time. But a Bible believer like Daniel isn't giving up hope 
because he's looking for a time when God will redo Genesis 1 and 2 again. We've read to the end and we win. That's what Daniel is expecting. And through the Bible, we have been given promises pointing towards a human being, a human king who will rule again properly, a human being descended from David, we see in the Psalms, and an anointed king who will be a bit like Adam and Eve should have been, but, but better, perfect, who can replace beastly rule with proper human rule. So there's the three beasts, one of whom does a bit better, is a bit more human. That's empires one, two, and three. But what of empire four? Will that be a bit better? Will that be better than Nebuchadnezzar? Well, the answer is a resounding no. It is not better. Verse seven, it is the very worst of them all. This one is no longer just a beast. It is actually now a monster. And that brings us to point two, rule by beasts or rule by monster. The focus of the whole of the rest of this dream is actually on this fourth, fourth beast alone. Verse 19, verse 8, it was different to the others. Beasts 1 and 3 are actually recognizable animals, but this one, well, we can't even think of an animal that comes close to how horrifying this is, so we have to make one up, says God. I've got to make up a monster. It's terrifying, verse 7, dreadful, exceedingly strong. This one has iron teeth. And it chews up and destroys and trashes all the other beasts as if they were mice. Uh, imagine now in Daniel's nightmare, the beaches of the Mediterranean coast are washed with the blood and the guts of each of these animals, decimated, ripped apart. It is horrifying. So what is this empire? Well, remember from chapter 2, the fourth empire is imperial Rome. And Rome was a monster. They were the iron to every other empire's precious but flimsy metals. They were the tanks and the guns of the modern era, weapons and technology and progress like no other empire before, an empire that was to last for more time than all the other empires put together. And they smashed themselves through Europe and the known world, reaching places like Britain, literally on the edge of the planet, when we were scrabbling around in the dirt. Uh, uh, Daniel would never have even heard of these guys. Daniel would have been terrified of them had he met them. This dream is saying to Daniel, you know, the lion of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the leopard of Alexander the Great, <laughs> they are cats compared to this empire, the Romans. The bear of the Medes and the Persians, oh, it's like a teddy in comparison to the heft and brutality of Rome. This empire is terrifying. This is why Daniel wakes up in a cold sweat because of this empire. And we're told that Rome has 10 horns, that verse 24 says are 10 kings. We don't know necessarily who they are, whether they're provinces and governors of prefects or 10, one after another. But the one you need to worry about, says God, is, is, is the worst of all, verse 8, this little horn. And this little horn is doing all of Genesis 3 as much as he can. He is ruining the earth very, very well. He is opposed to God's people. He is more violent than Belshazzar. His mouth speaks great things. That doesn't mean he's good at poetry. It means he's boasting something chronic about um, how great he is, greater than God. Verse 21, it made war with the saints. It prevailed over them. This little horn seems to be pointing to a Roman ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes. We'll see him later in Daniel, a truly reprehensible ruler that decimates God's people in Jerusalem. And remember, Daniel is not getting this in the book. He's dreaming this. Daniel has to watch as the scene shifts to the Roman army marching into Jerusalem. The city that Daniel cares most of all about and his people whom Daniel loves. He can't wait to get them back to Jerusalem. 
And that's the promise that they're counting down to. Daniel thought that they were only 10 years away from the return to Israel. That's Jeremiah's countdown. Possibly he may have thought that was it. In 10 years' time, that would usher in the return of the Messiah, the end of the world. God's people will be safe forever. Instead, Daniel has to watch aghast as he realizes that that isn't the end. As hundreds of years in the future, after three more empires, God is going to allow them to be attacked heavily, brutally again, more brutally than Babylon, as this Roman monster marches into Jerusalem. Verse 25 gives us some more detail. This king will speak words against God. He will wear out the people of God. He will throw out the law of God. And the end of the verse tells us that the people will be given into his hand, not just for one night in a lion pit, but for time, for twice that time and for more time again. That's just a poetic way of saying a very, very long time. And the reason Daniel wakes up terrified is because he understands the dream. He's anxious in verse 15, but then the angel comes and explains it to him, after which he's terrified. He's in pieces because he knows the future of the world will be full of empire and danger and violence and monsters. And for at least some period of that time, God's people are going to be right at the heart of it all. But we have one last question to ask before we close, and this is very important. And that is, are we stuck like this forever? The world is going to be ruled by beasts. God's people are going to be stuck in the middle of it. The beasts are going to fight each other over them. We're going to get beaten up, crushed, and hurt. Are we going to be like this forever? Well, point three says no. Because ultimately there will be a rule headed up not by beasts, not by monsters, but by a man again, like in Genesis 2. And not just any man, but under the rule of the Son of Man. You see, who ultimately is the boss in this chapter? In this mess of beasts and monsters and broken, brutalized bodies? For just as things are at their most terrifying with the little horn, everything changes at verse 9 dramatically. For as these beasts and monsters are battling and feasting on each other and feasting on God's people, the scene changes in a heartbeat. Suddenly, these beasts are no longer terrifying. They're sort of reduced to nothing in an instance in the face of a greater terror that turns up, the Ancient of Days, who walks into the room, switches on the light, and thunders at them saying, what on earth do you think you're playing at? And look at the description of this ancient being, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was pure like wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning with fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. This is the most terrifying image of Daniel's nightmare. Almighty, pure, burning God of eternity, angry with countless millions in his army. And this is the main point of the whole of Daniel, isn't it? And that is that whatever it looks like on the earth, in the very worst of times when all seems lost, when all is scary and uncontrollable and changed beyond recognition, however powerful the dictator on the throne, however monstrous, who is the boss? Who is really in control? 
it is God Almighty, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. This is an extraordinary image of God in Daniel. This isn't the sort of feeble, generic figure we see in children's Bibles of a white-haired man looking exhaustedly down from the clouds. God is not old here. He is ancient. Eternal, in other words. He's existed before there were days. And if he has white hair, that just means he's the one that knows everything. And he's armed. His, his throne is mobile, meaning he rules everywhere all the time. He's not stuck in one place. And his throne is on fire. And it's armed. And it's primed. It's ready to be used. This is the highest throne in the courtroom of heaven. And his army of 10,000 times 10,000 beside him. In biblical language, that just means countless and limitless numbers. They're all ready to move at his beck and call, and God has come to judge the behavior of the kings of the earth. And remember we said that the first half of the book of Daniel was written in the global language of Aramaic. Well, this is the last chapter of the Aramaic passages. This is the last chapter that is intended for the whole world to read, addressed to the kings of the world. God says, well, can you see what I'm doing? And I can see what you're doing. And he's not scared of them. God sets up his throne. He sits down and he judges them. The little horn is still chuntering on, but God is able to silence it, to, to kill it, and then he burns it. God is the boss. He rules. But what is he going to do about the mess of the world after he judges these beasts and monsters? Is he going to disappear into the clouds? No, he is in fact going to set up a fifth contender for global ruler, verse 13. And this contender, if you notice, is like a human being, which in the contents of what we've been looking at is really good news. He is not like a beast. He is fully human. And whereas these beasts come from the sea, this contender, well, he comes from the heavens, from God himself. He is God's candidate, and he comes to God, the ancient of days, and God says to him, oh, why don't you rule over everything? And he uses all the language over this man that this book has been using about God himself. And that is how the final rescue of the people will happen. Verses 18 to 27, this, this one human being takes control over all the kingdoms of the world and looks after all of God's people all of the time. And who is this contender? Well, he is one like the Son of Man. That is both simply a term for a human. Daniel is called a Son of Man in chapter 8. Here it is the particular human being who will take over the whole world. He is the perfect human that we have been waiting for since Genesis 3. And this son of man, notice, comes while the monstrous Romans were in charge devouring God's people. This human being, this son of man, has nothing beastly in him at all. This sent one from God is going to usher in a new eternal kingdom. This person is obviously none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is resolutely Jesus. In Mark's gospel, this is the favorite name Jesus gives to himself. I am the son of man. Not meaning that he was human, which he really is, but because he was the one standing in the middle of Daniel's nightmare. Breaking through the horror of a beastly world and ushering in the future eternal kingdom that Daniel and every believer in God across the ages have been waiting for and hoping for. The, the one who will stop the beasts and monsters, who will judge the Belshazzars and the Putins, the one who will break the empires of pain and bring his people out again to an eternal empire of his own and to rule the planet forever. And right at the end of his life on earth, Jesus says as much. Mark 14. Jesus is on trial by human beings who think they are stronger than him. 
They think they are going to kill him. They are going to kill him. They think they are far more important than him. And they say to catch him out, in Mark 14, they quote Psalm 2 and say, hey, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Hoping that he would answer yes, and they can kill him for blasphemy. And Jesus does say yes, but he doesn't go to Psalm 2. He goes to Daniel 7. Mark 14, 62. Jesus says, I am... And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You see, Jesus turns to the rulers who accuse him. Do you know who I am? Do you know what sort of son of God I am? Do you have any idea of what sort of king I am? Do you know what kind of human I am? I am the one from heaven, the one who came in the clouds in Daniel 7. And you're going to see me again when I come back to judge all the rulers, including yourselves. I am the right hand of power in the earth. I am in charge. I will rule forever. And you are going to regret this day in court. You see, what is God teaching us through Daniel 7? And in the end, despite what is going on in the world, we, the saints, win. But not because we did anything special. But because of this son of man, because of him, because the almighty God judges the rulers of this world and finds them wanting and unseats them, and in their place he inserts his candidate, his son, the greater Daniel, the stronger King David, the, the better Adam, the perfect human, the son of man, who will rule for eternity and who will win his people for an eternity. And how will he do that? How will he win? How will he break beasts and monsters? Well, not 40 verses before Mark 1462, we have Mark 1422, where we read in an upper room with his disciples as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. You see, the almighty Son of Man was to start his rule, not by violent conquest, but by sacrificial death. For many. For all those who would call on the name of this divinely human king sent from God. For all those who would become his people, who would bow the knee and claim him as king, as they are ushered in their death in him to this everlasting dominion that shall not pass away and this kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And 2,600 years after this dream, 2,000 years after this first supper pointing to this king's kingdom, we eat of this very same table this morning. And we do so remembering all of this. The question for us all as we do is, are we sons and servants of the king? Are we saints who cling to the victory of the true and perfect ruler of the Son of Man? And if we're not, would you like to be? For this king wants you to know him today, to make his death yours today, and in a violently unsettled and changeable world as we are in this morning, to bring you to this steadfast, safe, secure, eternal world, eternal kingdom today. All you need to do is ask him, and he is yours. And in this king, you win. Well, let me pray for us as we close, and as we prepare our hearts uh, for communion. Heavenly Father, God, thank you and praise you for the words um, 
of Daniel 7. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for inspiring them. Thank you for being the God of all eternity, who reigns and who rules and who is in total charge of everything that is going on. Father, that is such good news for us here this morning. For these uh, students, these Christians who are in Ukraine, who are stuck and, and know they might die, Father God, I pray very, very much that this will be good news to their hearts this morning as they look, as we look on the truth that you are setting up an eternal kingdom in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of man who came to win people for himself so that no beast and no monster could take us out, not even Satan himself, and that we would stand before the Ancient of Days on the last day and be counted one with the Lord Jesus who represents us before the Father in, in robes of dazzling white as we are found perfected in him and as we are brought into that kingdom together. Heavenly Father, please, please, may we as a church have a real awe about this God. Father God, may we fall in love with the Lord Jesus. May we claim him and own him. May we bow the knee before him and may we be unafraid to speak of him into a world that so desperately, desperately needs to hear him. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.